pronounce your name correctly for me yes my name is guna it's actually my mother's idea to call me guna because she was inspired by the fairy tales and books and legends and everything that comes around it so my name was a quick idea and then i made the research of my name regions and it comes that in irish guna is addressed in India, it's actually a man's name, so it's quite difficult to define whether I am Guna or Gunna, as Swedish would say. It's it's your name. You have every right to, to have your own interpretation of it. Mine mine is gift of God, is what Matthew means, but that's because my, my father is also a priest, so, you know, kind of fits. Yes, definitely. Yeah. All right. So you are an attorney in Brussels, just to be clear on where you are. And you focus primarily on arts and art and cultural related things. How did you come to the choice to, you know, of all the things you could do in the, in the law, why did you come to arts and culture? Actually, as an art lawyer, well, I'm, I usually receive two kind of reactions from people. First, that's, oh, is there such a subject as an art law, actually? And then the second is, oh, so what do you do? Well, that's a good start. So let's start with actually, like, who would your primary clients be in the arts? Are they artists? Are they collectors? Are they gallery owners, institutions? Like, who are the people that need legal services the most? Well, I guess in the modern world, we all need legal services. It's too complicated to just go through without anything like that. <laughs> but starting once again, it's uh, arts law. It's covering everything, starting from the museums to the galleries, to the artists, to the street artists. And I could I could just go on and on with the list because even the architecture is within the arts law concept. So I, I started as an arts lawyer actually by an accident because I was really into arts. I was studying history of arts. I was trying to become a painter myself. Well, unfortunately I failed. I'm just one of one of the many who tried. Me too. Yeah, yeah well, then you know the other part of the story as well. Yeah, you find something else that's somewhat still tangential to the arts just to keep you interested exactly exactly but well the the passion for the arts so um, it, it stayed there always and i i truly believe that we have to do what we love and love what we do well it sounds cheesy but art and law are those two things that i'm passionate about and since there is a possibility to fuse them to, together and make out something interesting for everyone and something that I can help with. Well, that was exactly what I wanted. So it, it includes every single topic that comes into my mind related to the arts. Some of them are rather dry contracts, for example, because we all need some agreements. And so those gallerists who say, well, just a handshake is enough. We don't live in the medieval times anymore because at some point there will be some 
some arguments, some misunderstandings, some misinterpretations. Because on my daily basis, I come around with really curious things regarding contracts and they don't seem that dry anymore because they're misinterpretations, language problems, galleries who say, I will take it in, but you will not get it back, and so on and so on. Let's take a step back on that then. So I'm new to Europe. I'm American, mm -hmm. as you can tell. So in Europe, what makes a contract legally binding? Just period. <laughs> like it's very simple, very rudimentary here. In Europe, it's a wide expression of legal field again, because every single country has the national legislation. So wait, so there's no like EU standardization on legality of stuff. So it is still country by country. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, okay. And arts law, I would say it, it, it was born in France, of course. So the basis of the arts law in Europe comes from France, but then again, it's totally different. The Copyright Act, for example, is totally different from country to country. So we can't really go and say, well, you know, in Europe we have this and in the United States we have that. Because even the UK right now is a hot topic because where do that belong, which is the middle point of it, because there's still problem and we still don't know what to do with the copyrights which were registered under the EU law. And then they suddenly became the UK. So do they need to re-register them? When? How? So these are really, really actual topics right now, apart from COVID, which is, of course, as well. But that's totally another subject. Yeah, we're not talking about the legality of COVID. That's not my concern. That's illegal. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, it's difficult. But let's start from, the, again, foundational. So yeah. Because you, so you're saying contracts yes. are not sort of, uh, there's not a consistency throughout Europe. It's no. still country by country. Yes. That sucks. Okay. I was looking for something consistent. <laughs> how about, how about intellectual property? So by okay. the definition in this region, what is it and how can you protect it? The first thing that comes into my mind is actually uh, case law, which is Jeff Koons. If you know it, uh, he became popular in arts world as, uh, as, as right now he is as popular in the French courts. Because back in the 2018, the High Court of Paris ordered Jeff Koons and uh, Saint Pompidou uh, to pay Mr. Davidovici the author of the advertisement which Kuhn's appropriated in creating a sculpture entitled Fait d'Hiver. If I'm not mistaken, it was 135,000 euros for copyright infringements. So it does go under the intellectual property perfectly well. He was also fined exactly in the same case, 11,000 euros for reproducing that work on on its website, which is publicly available. So it falls under the scope of intellectual property protection as well, because there is a huge difference if you just take a picture of the, of the sculpture and then you just show it to your family or you just publish it in all over the social media pages and then it becomes already an illegal part of that 
case because if the photography is shared with your family or internal website, you can do it. You can do it. You always have to be very careful if you state the, the artist's name on it or not, who will reach this photography and who will be restricted to see that photography or you publish it on your website that you don't know what will happen afterwards then it's already two sides of the copyrights public and private okay you brought up appropriation i'm fascinated with appropriation i have done it in my own career with my own artwork and so i'm wondering what what are the are, are there sort of some standardized sort of terms that sort of define what a, is an appropriate version, a quantity of appropriation versus not? Because like the, from my memory, which is very old now, I mean, this is back in the 2000s in the United States, they used, the courts used a term that said something like a significant artistic difference from the original would allow for appropriation as long as there was a significant artistic difference. Is it something like that? Because they, I remember that I seem to remember they also said like no more than like 15% of the original could be included in the new artwork or else it would be stealing, you know, theft or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, like, are there sort of guidelines for appropriation in this region? To say so, it's 15% is more or less, but it's not in numbers. It's always the artwork, the the stealing of an idea counts. The stealing of the heart of the artwork counts. So it can be, if we speak about Harry Potter, you can write uh, a book about wizards, and you can you can count you can have a similar story, but there cannot be mentioned any of those words like Harry Potter, Hogwarts, or similars, because that is the heart of the creation therefore we can we can always say that a small corner of an of a drawing can be taken away and used in my artwork but that corner cannot include ever the idea the the heart of that drawing so if i draw a man itself i can take away his shoes image I cannot take the whole body and just color it and then say, well, that was my idea because it's not my idea. It's someone else's work taken by me. But you're using the words idea. Um, mm -hmm. So like, I want to differentiate because when I say the words idea, I'm thinking, so let's say I'm at a pub and I'm talking with a friend and I pitch out like, hey, I want to do this, this painting that looks like this and I describe it in great detail and then that person goes and paints it first did they steal my idea so like that's what I'm asking so like yes. is is it is intellectual property about the concept sort of the the explanation of something or the sort of the tangible result of something it protects the idea, but the idea has to be recorded somehow. Because if you go to the pub and you say you're friends, I will make golden shoes in this way with this weight and this size, he will go home, he will make them, and you will have no proof that that wasn't his idea. Legally, how can I prove it? 
if you have any records you have done, even if you have written it down on a paper, you legally you have that proof that that was your idea. But to say so, it's difficult. It's always difficult. That's exactly what I was thinking. I'm like, okay, well, that might be great, but like, okay, so like, let's say I did, I wrote in my journal my idea. A week later, I told my friend in the pub, and a week later, they produced the thing, and I have proof that I wrote it a week ahead of time, but it's in my journal. So like, there's no, I, I could have written that five years later and just said, oh no, I wrote it back in whatever year. I think like, so like, how do you prove <laughs> that your even your written documentation came first. Well, that it depends totally on your lawyer. How shady they are. Exactly. <laughs> okay, fair yes. enough. So, so ideas themselves can be, for lack of a better word, sort of like become intellectual property. Yes, but they have to be like. There's an old wives tale in the United States that like if you write an idea down and put it in the mail and mail it to yourself that somehow that's some sort of proof even though I, I doubt that highly no that that serves as a proof everything that is written or taken a photography of or anything that is visible serves always as a proof so you you talked about social media and websites. So you meant you said Jeff Koons, and you talked about his being sued for producing a piece of art as one thing, but then separately being sued for putting an image on his website. How concerned should artists be about like people taking their images and using them on other people's websites? That is the the, the copyright that you have to always state who's the author. Where did you see it? And if you are really, really concerned about the legal side of your picture or your any of the images, you always have to reach out the author and ask them. And this is where the art and the law come, can be seen together because if we speak about street art, for example, street artists, they, they, they make a huge difference face to the city and especially right now with the COVID times because it has become really popular all over the world to express their feelings while they can't go anywhere together and celebrate the life. So depending on the country, again, street art is protected by copyright law again and so an artist don't even need to put a, any copyright symbol on them. Because mostly this, this means two sorts of legal protection. Their legal rights and moral rights like an, as an author. And the work can, cannot be used in a derogatory way, which could harm their reputation, political beliefs, and so on, on, so on, and so on. So these legal rights describe the, the the exclusive right to make a copy to communicate or adapt the artwork which is not allowed under copyrights so to take a picture and share online this original street art legally you would need to get the permission of the copyright owner and also credit the artist as i previously said I know that's many times impossible because we don't know who is that street artist who, who painted it. So then you will have to do 
every single possible way to at least state where did you take that picture because most probably that will not include any legal crimes or nothing the, those people they don't make any money out of their artwork and if you take a picture you are well we are not speaking about banksy that that will come after <laughs> Well, no, I know, I know of street artists that are, they, maybe they don't make any money from the completion, but they get paid to do yes. the street art. Yes. So they Definitely. do earn incomes from it. Definitely. Many times, even the, the owners of that plot or that house, they either they pay to the street artist or the, the payments, so the commissioned work, as we call it, it's actually can be very confusing to the street artist as well because even if the owner pays the street artist a meal and a beer it's a commissioned work because he has been paid for and many times he is not even aware of that fact that no i have been paid in some way for my art so now do they know that by accepting these this beer or these meals, they are as well hanging over the copyrights to the organizer or to the owner, therefore losing all the rights over their, their work. I would assume most of them are unaware of that. Yes, definitely, definitely. And so now back to Banksy, when we speak about him, his most famous, most probably statement of copyright is for losers. And then again, we have a case with him, with his famous flower bouquet thrower, as his most probably most famous artwork for him at that moment. It was it was very special for him. Artists usually, if they work at that level, they want to have the protection. Well, they they protect their works by copyrights. Banksy chose to lose the cases because he prioritized his anonymity, which is a very difficult issue because then you, of course, you will be losing, especially the next step he took over by opening a pop-up shop, offering his murals, which were only available online. So that doesn't comply with any of these rules for the copyright protection, neither uh, trademark registration clauses, and stating that I'm not going to do anything but to follow exactly the steps, the legal steps I need to make for this trademark was a huge mistake as well, because of course the, the European Union Intellectual Property Office, they, they canceled this trademark and and they replied that this plan was only Banksy's intention to circumnavigate the law. And it's uh, totally inconsistent with honest practices. Well, but his fundamental thing is that sort of anti-establishment stuff. So, like, kind of makes sense. I, I'd go with it. Okay, that's that's good. That's good. I look forward to someday knowing who he is. Or she, I should say. Doesn't have to be gendered. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, but wait, but so back to the the website stuff, because, okay, I'm a photographer, or traditionally a photographer, but I'm always like, 
people steal images all the time. Like even on this podcast, like we have a website and we use images with permission from the, the guests on the like social media and things like this. What's the difference of like using it for permission, using it on social media versus like using it on a website where commercial money is made? Like what are the sort of subtle differences between all those specifically in a legal format? Photography is another question already because here it also depends on the permission first, the permission of the person who's in the picture. After the photographer, it's if it is a landscape and there is no person in it, then of course he can he's always protected because any creative idea is protected by copyright by its nature. So wherever the photographer publishes his pictures, his work, there is always an obligation to reach him out and to say, hi, I would like to use your pictures for this or for that. So it will be perfectly well seen by the, by the photographer, or he will say, no, thank you. I'm not interested, or you will have to pay me. So legally, there are so many versions that you can use your creative work. And at the same time, if you copyright your work, it's, it's, it's not even necessary, as I said, to put that copyright symbol on it because it's already there. Anything that goes there, it's always protected. But you need then to register with a trademark, which is where money concerns come in because registering for trademark is expensive, time-consuming, and many times if you don't really feel you will need it to protect your incomes or your economic interests. All right. Help me out again, new to Europe. So copyright, you're saying is it is inherently installed, but how long does that last? Copyright lasts forever. While you are alive, the copyright lasts forever. Right. Well, because like I spoke to the guy in the United States, he said mm -hmm. like lifetime plus 70 years. Yes. But then after that 70 years, what you have to file for it, you have to keep it like, so like theoretically, you know, me and my ego. So my estate, my children will have to then uh, 70 years after I pass, will need to then file for copyright in order to retain it or else it goes into public domain. It goes into public domain after, after that, of course, if it is, it's your statement photography, it's your statement picture. You can always apply for protection and you can state it in your, as your artistic heritage. Now, the difference of trademark. So you brought it up. What does it mean? I'm so, I'm, I'm such an idiot when it comes to this kind of stuff. Let's keep it focused on the arts. So let's say I'm an artist. What would I trademark? My name? Yes. You can trademark your name. Like I recently had a case in, with a fashion law where someone reached me out and said, I want to protect my design. And then I said, well, design is pretty wide concept because I'm very sure there is already an existing design very similar to yours. So maybe what you want to protect is your, your name, your label. It has to be something different. So what I suggested them instead of protecting one particular design, 
they protect their name, they trademark their name, and then use something distinctive in each of their designs they, they produce. It's uh, when we speak about Hermès bags, it's very obvious that they are protected not because of the design of the bag. They are protected because of a special piece in that bag. And this is what you need to think about. Don't think about one particular design that you just had an idea about it. Think about your label. Think about something distinctive that will protect your designs and will make it both profitable and secure. I understand that from a fashion label standpoint. So like, so let's say I'm a painter. Could it be that I use a very particular wood to build my framing structures or a very particular fabric would like as my canvas would like, would that be enough to be that? Or does it have, what, what could we do? Let's say, let's, let's take it from like fashion and, and art into like fine arts. So like what could a sculptor do or a printmaker do or a painter do to become a, tr have a trademark of some sort? It can be distinctive techniques that you use for painting. It can be a special pattern that you use in your paintings. It has to be something dis distinctive always in that artwork that you produce. It can be, I don't know, a red dot that you always add to your painting on the other side as well. That's a nice idea. I like that. Because I, I have this painting that I had a friend of mine I went to school with, and on the back of his painting, he wrote this ridiculously long list of like things all over. It literally just looks like a list of things. He signed every single piece that he owned with this li a, a similar list, but the list changed for every painting that he signed because it was like the name. Of, it was like the brand of car, the girl he was dating at the time, the street he was living on, like, like it was like a code that he created on the back of his thing. And so like that became a sort of thing that he did for every piece of art. It, mm -hmm. It's, it's super long, but, and he, and I asked why he did it. And he said, he just wanted to screw with uh, future art historians. Yes, exactly. Speaking of that. So you had seen on your website, it says you have a, a specialty in an authentication issues. Yes. How are you doing that? I'm utterly fascinated. Like I love all those like TV shows. Like what is it? Like a faker, faker fact, fact, or what's what's the British one? The ah, oh, there's so many really great like sort of like going through art history and trying to figure mm -hmm. out what you know X-rays and like all these kinds of things. Like so, like what are the authentication issues that come up? Like. For, con for specifically, I'm probably saying more for contemporary work than historical work. It's, of course, I'm no expert myself. We work with a, with a team of experts in authentication, but basically it means when someone wants to buy an artwork from, for example, Jeff Koons, the same, and he's not really sure whether that is an authentic work of Jeff Koons or not. So then we ask to our experts and we make an expertise, which many times is you can just look at it and you can say, yes, that's definitely the one because I recognize it by this pattern or this distinctive mark. In paintings, you can make a color expertise 
to see whether it really fits into the era or, or year when it was produced then and now, then you always can use special laboratory experiments that define whether it's authentic or not. So it's, it's always, of course, there is a chance that there will be a possibility to make an error and, and say, yes, that's the artist. And finally, it turns out that it was not like in the famous, famous Nadler Gallery in New York, which was, I believe it was one of the most famous cases. I just watched that documentary on Netflix. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I know. I know what you're talking about, but they, I mean, that's the thing is like there, there are millions of fakes and forgeries and everything out there. And, and many of them are uh, attributed to the artist, but incorrectly. So like, how can you remedy that? I wish there would be a solution for, for forgeries. I really wish so, but I think it's impossible right now because there will be always perfect perfect forgeries that you will be unable to see and arts market most probably in this sense legally is the most fragile one because there is always a possibility to make a perfect copy and with a copy i speak about if we speak about the contemporary art it's a copy made by someone else absolutely not relevant to the artist if we speak about Leonardo da Vinci creations. It's also a copy. If one of his students has done some painting under his supervision, it's still a copy. So it would be very, very difficult for the experts to say whether that was Leonardo da Vinci himself or one of his students. Yeah, I mean, I've been hearing a lot recently about the issue of like, attributed to or from the studio of kind of yes. things the, you know so they they seem to be finding additional words that sort of it's still it's still leonardo was involved in it but it might not have been done by his hand kind of thing so exactly and all the art experts they used to say i believe it might be or they just say nothing in regards with the authenticity because it's many times it's very difficult because their own words can be turned against them yeah they it'll hurt their reputation if they say for certain something and then turns out it's wrong exactly exactly yeah the arts world is all about reputation but that's a whole different issue so <laughs> okay what about um because you're in europe i'm interested a little bit about like reparations because i would imagine a lot of those kinds of cases come around with specifically world war ii kind of stuff and things like this possibly even africa for all i know you know so like country wanting things back and things like this is this something that it is let's say quote unquote like common no this is not common. There are many, many cases where artworks have been taken away and nobody knows exactly where they are and where to go to find them. So there is always that the difficult part of the Nazi looted things that you never see them again, or most probably the most famous case is Gustav Klimt, Women and Gold, that was one of such cases that you only get in once in a lifetime and you actually 
make it happen. But here in Europe, it's it's not very common, and all those cases usually are treated outside the courts in very strict privacy, because it's also not only about the reputation; it's it's quite sensible subject which which should be treated as such. And as I always say, that in the art world. Courts uh, should be avoided. We have arbitration, which is really, really good for these cases. And I think that not going to the court many, many times is a better option. Just for clarification, define arbitration. Arbitration is when there, there is a background of many experts who decide where the truth hides because many times when we go to the courts we have a we have a judge and the judge reads the statement about Gustav Klimt's works and he happens to be interested in in the industry and and iron navigation so he is not really used to what exactly it is about so many times it's underestimated it's time consuming and when we speak about art arbitration, it's experts sitting in front of each other and speaking about the possibilities, where this artwork comes from, who has been the owner, with all the list of provenance where the artwork has been all this time. And the person who wants to get it back is not exposed publicly. So it really makes a huge difference for all of them. When it comes to a case like that, who, like, how do I explain this? Okay, in the United States, it's it's the prosecutor's job to prove guilt. So, you know, innocence is is uh, assumed, and it's they have to prove the guilt. So the, 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 I forget what the terminology is for that. So when it comes to something like a, an art looted thing or something that has been procured and, and it's not by the owner kind of thing, whose obligation is it to prove ownership? Is it the person who currently owns it or the person who wants it back? It's about good face purchase when we speak about it because you have to prove that you didn't know that that artwork was actually stolen, looted, or has a shady prominence because it's the importance of both parties to the purchaser comes to me and says I bought it because I didn't know it was stolen I bought it from the from the art dealer whose gallery is now closed so I can't ask anything to prove that that was really there and the art gallery owner told me that it's really well conserved artwork that was not exposed to any museums and that's a special piece and then comes the 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 true owner and says now well because that was stolen from me years ago and then it disappeared the u.s cases are the way it is protected or it is defended in the u.s is not quite the same in europe because in europe it's all before the court, we prepare documents, we prepare our arguments, and then in the court, we only have to follow the lines. So it changes a little bit. And many times it's even before the court that we prepare all, all the documents and all the provenance proofs 
and we just go and say, yes, actually that was stolen because here we are missing this part. Well, you talked about provenance. I love that word. It's a beautiful word, but provenance, like, I understand, like, as it, as a, a piece of art gets sold on and on and on, like, there's bill of sales, there's lots of different ways, you'll cancel checks, all kinds of different ways to be able to sort of track that kind of stuff. What I'm interested in is, like, what can contemporary artists do now to create a sort of confidence in a buyer or a, or a collector about the provenance or, you know, basically the authenticity really is I'm sort of getting to like certificates of authenticity. Should we be doing them? Are they even legally binding? Do they matter? What's your input on that? To start with always, always write down where the artwork goes. Every show, every place you visit with this artwork is a provenance in the future. So you will be able to track down where your artwork has been in any particular moment. Okay, wait, I want to be clear on that. Digitally, like, should I do an Excel spreadsheet or should I hand write this like on a piece of paper? Those counts. Okay. But the certificates of authenticity. I'm a bit obsessed with them and I probably go way too far. I have this beautiful thing that I print out on nice archival paper and I fill in all these little details of it from the inks to the papers, to the printers, to all the different stuff. And then I do a hologram sticker with a number with matching numbers that I put on the back of the artwork. And then I put the matching hologram sort of like tamper proof sticker on the certificate to create a uh, sort of a theoretical perfect bond between these two. So, you know, this image goes to this certificate, no others. Am I being too obsessive? Honestly, yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so what's the minimum that, that, that an artist should do just to create a, a legal confidence that, that, that this piece of art was indeed made by that artist? Same. You can you can opt either for being obsessed with the certificates of authenticity, or you can just write down everything you have because every time you go to the gallery, you have a contract that you sign for showing your artwork. Theoretically. Theoretically, highly encouraged to do so because that's a part of the provenance, and you also have the additional annex which states all your artworks that have been showed in this gallery. So I highly encourage always everyone to write down on a computer, take a picture on the phone, whatever it takes to make it clearly visible for the records. Yeah, because I'm thinking back to my career. Like I could tell you I was in an exhibition in... 1998 in a particular gallery, but I could not tell you what work that was anymore. Like I have no, I no recollection of exactly which piece was there. So you're saying that we should keep better records basically of like exactly what piece is exhibited where and when just to create like sort of almost like a, a paper trail of the existence of that piece. Yes, definitely. Definitely. That will make a huge difference in the future when someone will come over and say, that doesn't look like Matthew's work. And the other will say, yes, no, that's definitely his work. And then another will come over and say, I can't be certain because <laughs> they don't want to stake their <laughs> reputation on it. Yeah. 
Okay, but what about estate planning? Like, this is something that's concerning me a lot. You know, lots of death and dying going on in the world. And I I get concerned. Of course, my parents are getting older. I'm getting older. What should an artist be doing while they're alive to prepare for their sort of future estate? Because I know there are tax issues for for their children and things like this. So, like, what should be done ahead of time? That's a good question. You have to make sure that your interests are protected, definitely. You have to make a list of what you want to protect. There are tax issues, but uh, then we, again, we, we separate them. If your children will want to show your works in the museum. Hold on a second. Go back. You said my interests should be protected. First of all, what is my interest? Second of all, what's a definition of protected? Of course. Protected is the meaning that your children should always take care of what they do with your artworks, one of the estate's pieces. So if they sell them, they should always be aware that they sell only the artwork, not the copyright of it, which is one of the parts I always say as well that the gallery has one type of agreement with the artist. The artists have another agreement to sign with the gallery because the interests are not the same in both, on both sides. That is also about the estates. When you plan ahead what you want to leave in heritage for your children, you have to make sure that they will be aware of how to handle it. It's not only about the taxes because it depends whether you give them your collection of highly priced artworks or you're just giving them the contemporary artworks you have created that might be very, very valuable within 50 years. It's only one part of the iceberg. But the other part is always the the rights that you are giving them and the rights they have to be aware of when they sign any contract. When they give it to them, museum or they sell it to the private collectioner where exactly so it's a really wide subject to speak on well but how how do you do these protections like i mean is it just a appropriate language in a will or is there some other way to do that like what you know what so i'm sitting here okay here mm-hmm. i'm an artist i don't have any kids at the moment but like, theoretically i could die at any time <laughs> like knock on wood but you know, what can I do just sort of inherently, even if I don't have children, like, I mean, because I might pass it on to my wife or a lo- another family member or whatever, but like, what should I do to protect my legacy now? Your will has to be well written with all the clauses inside of it. That's why there must be a lawyer who knows exactly about what he is speaking about. Because the, the copyright, you can give it away without knowing it. And the lawyer who makes it will not be aware what is he writing down exactly in your will. Is he giving the rights to sell your artworks or is he giving the rights to sell your artworks together with your copyright? When I think about it, like I've always said, if you buy a piece of art that does not give the new owner any of the rights, they just bought the the thing, but they have no rights to it. Is that true? Because I could be totally wrong. 
when you sell your artwork, you sell just the creation. You don't sell your rights. But you have to spend a special attention where it speaks about copyrights. Because in every contract about artwork, there is a special clause that describes the exact meaning of a copyright in this particular sale. Because if you sell your artwork or you, you write it in the will that you will be giving it to your wife or your family members, you give them the responsibility to manage your artworks. The copyright is still back with you. And then they... <laughs> so I love how you, say, you just say like, with every contract, I have sold far more artwork in my lifetime with no contract, no receipts, no no documentation whatsoever than I have by selling works with contracts. And even those contracts that I did have, eh, very questionable at best. <laughs> so like th this idea that you think that all artwork has a contract when it's sold is... I think it's a bit uh, optimistic on your side. I know, I know. I'm fighting on that always. And that should change, actually, because right now it's even more difficult with the digital sales when we never know where it goes. It's not only about the forgery, because someone has to, to be really interested in copying someone's work, because there is, a, of course, there, there is a money back there. But even so, if you suddenly see one of your artworks that you sold without a contract published in a book about, I don't know, communism, and you are strongly against it. So what will you do then? Because how will you go and say, well, I sold you this artwork and I have my author's moral rights when I can protest against this publication and this book. But you need to have that proof that you have sold this artwork to him, that you have given this piece of your art to him. Or her. Or her. <laughs> yes. To be fair. Yes. Not all people that use images illegally are men. Though no. most are. <laughs> okay. But 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 also how does that that issue come up like crossing borders? So like let's take a random one. I'm an American, so I'm going to do like this bad thing, but I'm going to say like, so let's say there's a book published in Russia, but you are a practicing artist in France. Do you have any rights to like do anything? Like, so let's say the book is published in Russia and only available in Russia, but, and you're in France. Can you do anything about that? Yes. Yes. There are international agreements that you can base your arguments, protests, or demands on. So, of course, it's protected worldwide. Is it, though? Really? Yes. I mean, but only when these countries that have these agreements. So, like, okay, here, I'll give you a, a better example just to really so not lock it down. North Korea. So, a book of my that has my art in it is in North Korea. North Korea has no agreements with anybody, okay? So, what can I do to stop that book? In that particular place, nothing. <laughs> But most civilized countries, let's say, have some form of a, a an international agreement that hmm. basically, like, no matter where you live, if somebody else publishes or uses your imagery for commercial purposes, you can at least put an injunction on them or something like this to at least stop it, if not have it destroyed or whatever. Yes, exactly. 
because your moral rights as an artist do not recognize the the borders. They are always there. I love this term you're using, moral rights. Please tell me a definition for moral rights. Moral rights, it's, it's about the way you see the world, your ethical. But everybody's morals are slightly different. So like, how exactly. do you legally define moral rights? When a client comes over to me and says, I need to protect my moral rights because I've seen my work hanging on, on the public bathroom in the station. <laughs> I, lo I love these examples we're coming up with. Go ahead. So the, the thing is that you have to find that argument and say, yes, you are right, because it shouldn't be in the bathroom and the station. And then some artist comes around and says, well, my moral rights are injured because I just saw my drawing published in a book for children. I don't want it to be there. And then I have to appeal to his, to his moral itself and say- Or her or her, <laughs> once again, not all artists are men. And not all people who do illegal things are men either. In this case, we're speaking about the morality of the, of the rights. And supposedly she comes over and she says, I don't want to see my drawing in that book. And then I, I, I have to sit down and speak slowly to really understand where is the problem, why that drawing shouldn't be there, because this is not about moral rights. This is about something that she or he cannot agree with, but we cannot really mix it all together because it's not the same. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for this idea of moral rights. I've never heard this, this terminology before, but the idea that you're, you're telling me sounds magical. But how do you prove moral rights, partly, but also... Like, I'm just trying to think, like, there are certain countries where morals are more flexible, let's say, than others. And so, like, how do you, there, there's no standard moral rights. It's a community standard of moral rights kind of things. But then even beyond that, like, okay, so let's say, let's say somebody took my photograph and they put it in a, a urinal at a pub illegally without my permission and I say, oh, that, you know, that breaks my moral rights. What can I get from that? Like, so basically all I can do is just tell them to take it down. But like, can you actually sue them? Or like, is there money that's involved in that? The example you just gave was more about the copyright infringement. So I'll give you a different example then. So a book is published about, I'll use yours. A book is published about mm -hmm. communism. I'm against communism. And so I don't, so they broke my moral rights. So yes. what, that, yeah, exactly. that example. You can always demand the, the book to be taken away from publishing or from selling. You can demand any financial compensation for the damages caused to you as an artist, to your reputation, because you can be assigned the beliefs, political beliefs, or moral or religious beliefs that you don't really agree with. So there is always this possibility. And moral rights are actually one of the defense that you can use as well, because I don't recall right now the name of the artist, unfortunately, but in Paris, there was in a shopping mall, 
his sculptures, geese. During the Christmas time, the geese were wrapped with Christmas scarves and everything. So what did this artist do? It was him. He appealed to the moral rights because he said that my geese are not something that you could play with. It's an artwork. My moral rights are right now injured because I don't see these geese with this Christmas scarf on them. So he went to the court, the court gave the reason, and the scarves are taken down. I'm Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting issue. I'm not sh I wonder if I agree with that or not. I'd have to put more thought into that. That seems a bit extreme. Yes, that's an extreme example. Of okay, course. good. Okay, good. Because yes. I'm like, yes. I'm like that. That's a bit much. I mean, that's a bit arrogant, almost on the side of the artist to be like, "My art is perfect the way it is. Don't change it in any way." Like, come on, somebody exactly. paid for it. It's been bought. It's not yours anymore. Fuck off. There, exactly. There's a line there. But all right. Okay, you brought up digital works. Mm -hmm. I'm interested legally. Okay. I have a sort of a two-part question on this. So the two biggest questions basically are basically NFTs and money laundering. Those are my in the arts as a whole. I have this personal feeling, and I might be a bit of a conspiracy theorist on this. So like this may just totally be me. I have no proof of this. I want to make sure nobody's going to sue me over this. I feel like the whole NFT thing is a bit of a money laundering scam. What's your opinion on NFTs, A, but then also, is there a lot of money laundering issues going on in the arts world? Yes. Answering to your second part of the question, there is a lot of money laundering going around. There has always been. And it's, it's really an issue that we should be working on because there right now is no solution found to that so it's 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 something that we can't we, right now at this moment we can't protect the arts world especially right now with the digital sales no possibility to that which is why i think the nft thing is a bit of a money laundering thing but that's my conspiracy nut stuff so let's go into the money laundering I, okay i've heard for decades like oh there's money laundering in the arts money laundering arts. give me an example maybe not from your own career, but just sort of a theoretical example. Like what, how does the arts, like how is money laundering done through the arts? So is it like a, a some, I'm going to use Russia again. I'm an American. So some, some Russian person buys a piece of art, that art then goes somewhere else and then is, is basically traded for a nuclear, whatever, or some, some, some drugs, let's say, or something like that. Like, is that what it is? Like how, like basically, I hear the, the the phrase money laundering, but I sort of want a tangible explanation of like what are some examples of how money laundering occurs through the art world. The examples you gave, they are very good. They're very extreme, so that's the the upper point of it. But what's the benefit of doing that? So like, I, okay, I've heard a story that somebody in some foreign country, I don't remember what it was, bought a piece of art and then they turned around and basically gave that piece of art to somebody in trade for property. Is the idea of the money laundering thing a basically a tax evasion thing? Is that what they're trying to do? 
Yes, yes. In general, it is so. It's what they the money laundering in our world is buying a artwork for your illegal money that you have earned, God knows which way, and then you become an owner of a legal object, which after that you can sell and get back your legal money. So usually they buy the art pieces to later sell them again. Okay, so I get it. So basically, so let's say a drug dealer goes and buys a legitimate thing, a piece of art, and then turns around and sells that piece of art, even at a loss, but then that money is now legal money instead of illegally gained money through drug dealing. Exactly, exactly. Fascinating. Okay, that makes so much more sense now. Back to NFTs. What do you think of them? Well, but let's not even take, it's not even just NFTs. Cause like, I'm, I'm, I love the idea of NFTs, but yeah, the research I've done has not encouraged me to participate, let's say, but it's not even just NFTs. It's digital art in general, because like I'm a photographer, I grew up doing analog, you know, stuff in the dark or wet, dark room, all that kind of stuff. But now, of course now I do digital. So I've got, basically I've got digital files. So like theoretically, let's say somebody were to hack my computer and they were to get my original files, they could go off and print entire editions of my works. So like that whole issue of like digital art in general seems like a bit of a potential issue. NFTs, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm against it. At the really? moment, I'm against it because it's, I think it's, a, there's a catch in it because it seems easy. Artists are thrilled to that new opportunity, and at the same time, yes, yes, it's it's understood as a computer file so combined with a proof of ownership and authenticity, like a deed. Yes, that's how I understand it. Yes, exactly. But at the same time, it's very little protected. So whatever happens, you're exposed to that. There is no option to protect it. Well, I mean, is there a copyright inherently into that still? So like, are wait, okay. So if I'm an artist and I make an NFT, have I sold my copyright to that work? Legally, no. Okay. But you never know where it will end and how. Yeah, I know. Well, because like, I mean, I saw recently somebody like made an NFT of like the first tweet and they sold that. Like, so like... That's insane how people basically can sell a social media post as a thing. Right now we see arts in many ways. In many ways, there is very difficult to actually invent something new in the arts because there has to be something very, very unique. So selling something like you say, I don't see this as an artistic expression because then again, we, we get back to the copyright. How can I protect it? Because there is nothing regional, nothing authentic of it. Well, there's the digital file, but it's a digital file and I can literally can just hit copy paste. Now there are two of them. Exactly. Exactly. So that's a huge, huge question open to many discussions and I speak with many lawyers and they all have a different argument on that. 
So we still speak about it as how to protect it, how to understand it, and how to see it, and where to start with that subject. It's tough. Yes. But basically, I, I looked into NFTs and I thought about producing some because I have thousands of digital files that I've made over the years that I'm like, oh, it'd be really great to make them into NFTs, make a little money off of them, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. But like the system is very interesting because like to produce an NFT, I have to pay a fee. Yes. And there's no guarantee that I'll get that fee and return to me and like unless somebody buys them. So like I can make a hundred of these things, but if only like five of them sell, I actually lost a bunch of money simply through the the act of making the NFTs. It's I, 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 at this moment I'm not a fan of it, but I hope that it would get better. Speaking of that, so like I currently basically say that I think that that system's broken. The art world as a general whole, I take the position that is somewhat broken as well in between forgeries, money laundering, all the, you know, authenticities, all these kinds of different issues. Legally, from your perspective, what could be done to sort of help to make it better? To actually start reading laws, consult with specialist lawyers, definitely. It's one of the things that, as I always say, that the artist is is the risk taker and the lawyer is strongly against any risks. So maybe if we find the, the common language and the artist says, oh, I want that, that computer file, I want that NFT because I, I just want to try it out. And the lawyer will say, okay, let's sit down and let's start discussing what is your benefit in it and what is your possible loss in it. The forgeries, while well, there is, is, is this weak system that protects art, but nobody follows it, there will be always forgeries, there will be always copyright infringements, there will be always many, many kind of discussions, arguments, and fights over it. It has been so, it will be so. So what we have to change a little bit in the mentality of the artists and galleries is to start following certain things that every single business do. Artists selling your artwork. I, I strongly admire artists because selling an artwork is like selling a child. It's something you, you have created. It's something you really like. How can you put a price on it? But once you have put the price on it, it becomes a business. So as a business, it should be protected legally as every business does. Yeah, but I know lots of businesses that never talk to lawyers. I mean, because don't get me wrong. I love the idea of having legal protection for all of my artistic stuff. I'm all for it. My problem with it is I can't afford it. So like that's a bit of a barrier to this abilities like we want to be protected i've never met a single artist that goes no no i'm fine with not being protected in any copyright it's okay just take it all like of course they want to be protected but it's really expensive and time consuming and emotional to like have to sue somebody or anything like that but not even the, like the suing part but the idea of just being um being smart you know so like creating a good contract that takes money. You, you know, going to like legal Zoom and stuff is not going to get you a great contract. But like having a specialist in the arts being able to draw up a contract, that is smart. 
I agree with it. However, I can't afford it. Then what you have to do is sit down, start reading all the documents and everything you can find about your subjects and dedicate it to time. Because we all know when, when I say that when I have a headache, I'm not going to go to the doctor who treats feet. I will go to the doctor who knows about the head as well as an artist. Of course, I don't say that for every single artwork you have to hire a lawyer and say, I want to protect it, so I will pay you whatever it takes. No, but just to have a chat with the lawyer who will point out the weak sides of your business, of, your, of the way how you sell your artwork can be a good start. Is it legitimate? So like, okay, I'm sa- I'm sitting here saying I don't have money for it, but I mean, I'm sure I could find money to do it if it's important to me, as we all can, because, you know, we prioritize where we spend money. Um, but it, would it be fine? Like, so let's say, okay, I'm, I'm still new to Europe. So now that I'm in Europe, I need to get a legitimate sort of contract for sale of my artwork. Could I create like a template or maybe like three templates, like one for individual collectors to buy one for a gallery to be representing slash exhibiting and then i don't know an institutional uh, sort of one so they have three sort of templates and so theoretically i could hire an attorney one time create these templates i could probably use those for a good five years or so let's say and then maybe update them or then maybe there'll be like little nuanced things that will come up in the future that i then need to go back and contact them again but it's like it's not that i need to have you on retainer like be constantly paying but i could theoretically come to an arts lawyer and get like a a sort of a one-time template to get started with then maybe you know amendments or updates over the course of my career yeah yes that would be the perfect case because we all can do it for free on google but as non-lawyers that will be possible because that will not fit to the place where you are. So it's really, really a good idea to have just a small example of any contract that you might want to sign at some moments with the gallery, with the buyer, with anyone who wants to collaborate with you. So it this one contract can fit for, for years. Okay, but within that, because we're in the European Union here, there are many different languages. So if I got a templated version, let's say done in English, because I speak English, and then I go to have an exhibition in France, would it be legally binding in English? Yes, definitely. Okay, that's good to know, because I've lived in I lived in the United Arab Emirates, and the only documents that were legally binding there had to be written in Arabic. Yes, but still, you are American. The, the important thing is that you understand what you are giving to someone in France, in Italy, in Spain to sign because you will be the one who will have problems after that. And then if the gallery or, or the buyer says, I don't understand this contract, I don't speak any, any English, either you can use Google Translate and, and make it all happen in, in French or in Spanish, or you can always hand it over to a translator and say, I need it in, in French. It doesn't cost you much. No, software is free. But, okay, but back to one of my original questions that I didn't get an answer to. What is it that makes a contract legally binding? The reason why I ask this is, like, 
I was when I was a young art school student, we used to do things where like you sign something, the other person signs it, and then like a witness signs it, and then you have like addresses or phone numbers on there of the people that have filled this thing out. Like like so how how what what's the bare minimum to make something legally binding? Well, like a notary, do you need a notary? Do we need a, an app? What is it? Apostyle? Apostyle? Well, how no, is it pronounced? Apostyle. 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 Okay. Yes. Nobody's ever told me how that's pronounced. <laughs> that's not used anymore in Europe. So there is no problem with that. <laughs> I <laughs> disagree. When I moved here to the Czech Republic, I had to have my marriage certificate to my wife apostilled. Yes, because you are American. The documents outside the European Union still have to be with this apostle, but not within. No, but in America, we don't have apostles, apostles no. at all. We have notary publics, and yes. they're basically the same, right? Yes, yes, okay. exactly. Okay, anyways, bare minimum to make a contract legal. Exactly. Yes. To be legally valid, the, the contract uh, must contain two elements. Both parties or all parties must agree about an offer made by one party and it has to be accepted by the other fully understood in both languages or three languages something of value has to be exchanged for something else of value that is it and then you of course you have to write down your names you have to write down your passport or identity card numbers so we know that you are exactly the person that you say you are and it has to be signed. That makes in general valid contract. But just by the two parties, no need for witnesses, no nothing else like that. Just no. the two parties. Okay. Just two parties. The one who's selling or offering and the one who's buying or taking it over. All right, great. Last little thing uh, would be, do you have any advice for contemporary artists that you have not covered yet that that basically I'm looking for like the stupid thing that we don't even know to ask that you're like, well, of course you should do this thing <laughs> that we don't even know to wonder about. I think we have covered already most of it. Of course, there are always some details that just fly out somewhere, but you have to be careful with the whole process and take it seriously. You have to record every single exhibition, every single step you make with your artwork, and you always have to create. That's all you have to do. Yeah, that's all. Just be an artist and be a full-time business for your art. <laughs> yes, something that sounds totally incompatible, but yes, that's that's basically what you have to do. And as an artist, you have to create and take risks and be there in the world that the world sees your works. But as a businessman or a woman, you always have to take it from the business side. Yeah, see, the reason I got into the arts is because I didn't want to be a business or do business. I enjoyed being a creative person. But now, sadly, I've learned after 25 years in the arts that being an artist is a business also exactly exactly and as such it should be treated because you can be an artist and then you will be free as a bird in the sky to create and don't worry about any legal binding documents or 
apostles or certificates. But then again, if you want to be an artist who sells your your works, you have to protect your interests and you have to protect your your creations. Lovely. All right. More work for me to do. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Matthew. I hope you're enjoying and learning as much from these conversations as I am. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated as well. Also, please tell your friends to listen and subscribe too. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. I am your host, Matthew Doles. And for more information about the podcast and our guests, please visit our website, wisefoolpod.com. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners, Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene in Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.